Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. So this week on Product Love, live in location in glorious San Francisco, one of my favorite cities, I sat down and talked to Rich Miranov. Rich is the CEO of his own consulting group, named, of course, the Miranov Consulting Group. In the past, Rich has been the product guy at six startups and has consulted with over 100 tech companies. So with Rich, one of the areas we dug into were his four laws of software economics. The first law being the law of ruthless prioritization, otherwise thought of as your development team will never, ever, ever, ever be big enough for you. The second law, which is build once, sell many. And that's obvious because the money is in your nth customer or nth copy. The third law, the law of the whole product, because the product is more than just the code. It's in how you sell your product, how you support it, how you market it, and more, really. The fourth law, the law of strategic judgment, because product managers can't outsource their strategy. You can outsource many things, but you can't outsource your strategy. So these four laws got me to thinking, what other quote unquote laws should there be for product managers? I always say that product management is a newer profession. It's much younger than sales or marketing, but I feel like it's becoming more of a craft than an art, but maybe not yet really a science. Well, enough of my jabber, let's kick this off. And afterwards, shoot me a note at ebodic at pendo.io and tell me what you think. Well, welcome over to product today. I have Rich Miranoff here. Rich has been doing product for quite a long time as a consultant, an advisor, a mentor, a coach, and a thought leader. So Rich, why don't we kick this off by you giving us a little bit of your background? Okay, sure, thanks. So I've actually been doing product management since the 80s mostly software companies here in Silicon Valley. So in fact, there really was tech product management all the way back in the 80s. And lately what I've been doing the last few years is a combination of coaching VPs of product and heads of product and doing some work with product teams, but also dropping into companies as what I think of as a smoke jumper VP of product. So if that job's open, I might come in for a couple of quarters and get things straightened out while we're bringing a full-time head of product back in. Awesome. Now, one of the things you love to talk about, Rich, is product management, how it changes a lot between the spaces, right? And it's different depending upon what space you work in, consumer space versus enterprise space in particular, a lot of differences. Let's talk about that. Okay, sure. And for me, I think it's as much about the size of the audience and the complexity of the audience as anything else. So if you're in a consumer space, ideally, you're trying to sell a relatively straightforward product to maybe millions of users or buyers or consumers. And in the enterprise space, you might only have a few hundred customers. So the big gap, I think, is how we think about market research and going out and learning about the market. For consumer companies, often that's NPS, lots of surveys, reaching out for a relatively lightweight set of data from thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of people in the enterprise space that just doesn't work because you might only have 40 or 90 companies that are in your first target audience. So you're going to have to do real face-to-face half hour, one hour interviews with folks, dig deep, figure out the complexities of their organization. So very much more qualitative, heavyweight, 
you're going to get very few data points. So the idea that you might have sort of scientific provability and t-tests, I think, falls away in the enterprise space. And so that, that affects a lot about how they conduct their business, right? Or how they get data. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got, I think in the, in the consumer space, you really can be data-driven in a way that's scientific. The bigger your customers and the smaller the number, obviously the smaller the, the data set. And I think it's really hard to attribute success to on any one activity. So, you know, you could, again, in the consumer space, you might change an ad or an offer or you might put up a slightly different product pricing package. And you get to look at how the next 10,000 folks interact with that. If you're in an 18-month sales cycle with a Fortune 100 company, first of all, you can't really allow yourself to change your positioning or pricing during that sales cycle because you'll screw it up and the sales team will get really upset with you when they lose their deal and don't get to go to club. But you know, just the number of data points you have and the number of touches because you'll be doing product marketing and outreach and drip campaigns and sales calls, it's really hard to attribute any one change to the binary of did we sell or not. Yeah, and as a you know, product slash marketing guy, you know, attribution is very important, but gets increasingly difficult. And in the enterprise where consumers, where it might be single touch to you know, try and buy, a lot easier. Right. So if your typical sales cycle in the enterprise is 12 months and you've got 25 touches or 40 touches, attribution is really, really hard. And we end up falling back on some hand-waving and some opinion. It means the product managers can't really be as strong in their proofs, in their position, versus enterprise sales teams who are very persuasive and really want what they want just for their one account. Yeah, yeah. And so what it, moving from consumer or uh-huh. the differences between sure. consumer and enterprise are different on the sales support, sales escalation side too, right? You bet, you bet. And any individual sales call or, or more importantly, probably support call has a lot of weight in the enterprise because it came from... JP Morgan Chase, and they're a big account, and even though it was a small thing, that's going to run right up the organization for an escalation. And the pattern I see, the, the, the regular behavior I see out of enterprise salespeople, which is the right thing for them to do, is they'll come to some product manager and say, I need this feature, I need this extension, I need this special thing. Product managers, of course, almost always say, thanks, but we're not going to do that, and using lots of polite language. But that's a sales team that only has one account. They're highly paid. They're very well trained. They understand how to identify decision makers in the organization. So when I say no, I expect them to count to about five and then go to my boss, who might be the decision maker, and escalate that issue. If that's a big enough deal, if we have a $10 million target for the quarter and that's a $150,000 deal, then the VP of sales and the CEO are already involved. And it's much harder for a product manager to push back. And it's, you know, that, that's the behavior that I see almost everywhere I go on the enterprise side is sales folks understand how to escalate internally to get what their one account needs. And that's a pretty hard push for enterprise companies into the custom space of, well, we'll just do this one thing for Ford and this one thing for Goldman Sachs. And then we're down the road of, custom software. Yeah, and it's a problem, right? And if you have an addressable market that's say 80, 100 customers, and you're like pointing at one or two of them and saying, well, we need this feature to assign these two, or maybe even this one, there's a balancing act between, you know, product direction, roadmap, and being pulled into, 
custom software. Absolutely. It's a very delicate dance. And product managers have to, I think, gather a lot of political skill and a lot of organizational smarts, not just the classic, you know, consumer side, here's what my numbers tell me, because it just doesn't win, it doesn't work. And the, the balancing act of can we find three customers or maybe five customers who are going to use this and then we'll go ahead is a real challenge. That's, that's an essential part of the product management skill set. How do we expect to deal with those one-offs? Yeah, so I see, especially as things move to you know, more and more quote-unquote enterprise where there's a, a smaller number of addressable customers in your target market that one of the skills product managers need to have, which maybe they need less at a consumer company, is that ability to coerce maybe a little bit. Sure. And to recognize that enterprise salespeople are very good at what they do, right? We hire them and train them and promote them and send them to club in Hawaii because they're persuasive and they're thoughtful and they know how to manipulate customers into signing deals. And they turn all those same skills right back internally to get these deals closed. So I think enterprise product managers have to be much more socially connected to their sales teams. They need to understand the comp plan, go out for drinks with those folks every once in a while and figure out what they think, be on sales calls, get out of the office. So the yeah, Because the, they don't have the, all this data. They don't have 10,000 right. customer data points that they can use to back them up. That's right. And, and every good enterprise salesperson will say, well, I talk to my customer all the time. Of course, they're mostly selling. They're not gathering. Yeah, they're doing know. less learning, more positioning. That's right. That's right. They're not. They're not hired and sent into the field to learn, but that distinction is often lost. Yeah, and it's not to say they they don't learn about yeah, their customers' right. needs, but sure, it's a different type of that's right approach to learning than PM. That's right. As a product manager, I'm trying to dig really deep into jobs to be done. I'm trying to dig really deep into system configurations and competitive opportunities and reasons why somebody might not want to buy. As a salesperson, I'm particularly keyed in on what I need to say is in the product or get in the product in order to get to yes. So it's important, it's hard work, but it's a very different set of skills and questions. So we're going to sample for different things. We're going to learn different things. So I see one of the challenges PMs have at the enterprise is trying to take that single requirement, and maybe you used an example of, oh, if we did this, Ford would buy, right? And try to merge that and maybe morph it in a way that is like, okay, let's give Ford 80% of what they want, but it's the right way to do things. And then it's going to be interesting to GM, Tesla, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to feeling like custom software for Ford or, or looking like custom software for Ford. That's right. And there's also a one-up escalation that I encourage folks to do and I've done on the sales side, which is we know that if we do that piece of work for Ford, we're going to not do something else for Deutsche Bank and we're going to not do something else for Mitsubishi. And that's a clear trade-off in my mind, but unless I've externalized that to the, whoever runs sales, it's not obvious. So if I can drag back or my team can drag back to sales the choice that says this enhancement for Ford is going to push out something from the roadmap that Mitsubishi and Deutsche Bank are waiting for. And by the way, those are bigger deals and bigger customers. Now we're measuring things in sales units, which is dollars or whatever currency we're in, rather than story points or engineering, which the sales team's not that interested in. So, you know, how do we frame up the exclusive or trade-offs, which we know we're going to have to make in sales and revenue terms so that the sales leadership can make better choices or we can make better choices with them for what stays in and stays out? Because that Ford deal 
first of all, it may not ever close. And second of all, it may be a lot of work for not much revenue. Yeah, I, know, I know you did this great work, Mr. PM, and it got built in the product, but we lost because of price. That's right. <laughs> or, or something else happened and it wasn't my fault. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, but it leads us to an interesting discussion about roadmaps, right? So yes. what advice do you have for PMs out there, and especially in the enterprise on roadmaps, right? You have this need to balance the desires of customers, existing customers, sales who wants things for people who will become customers, right. and then engineering, marketing who wants things that they can build campaigns and buzz around, and then the execs who have their own set of priorities, usually around vision and how it adheres to a company strategy or direction. Right. And I think of the roadmap, it's an artifact, right? It's not an end point. And it's an artifact of the current state of negotiation among all the parties. So I'm usually very sure about what we're going to do in the next quarter, right? We're 90% that we're going to deliver all the things in the next quarter, partly because they're underway and, and they're well understood and partly because they're locked down. Two quarters out, you know, I feel like we're at sort of 80%. And in fact, when I talk to the executives and the sales team, everybody wants me to claim some flexibility here because we all know that something's going to happen or a new customer is going to arrive and there's this desire for the roadmap to be flexible. On the other hand, there's also a desire for the roadmap to be a real commitment, a, a contract, so that everybody can sell what's on the roadmap and know what's going to arrive. So when we put those things together, what it really means is we want to promise less in the out quarters and we want to be less specific and less certain about them. So when I look four quarters out, even in an enterprise space, you know, my gut tells me we're about 50% likely to get those things. So I want to underload or I want to short the out quarters and have fewer stuff, fewer things. And that's, uh, there's another piece of balance there because of course the executive team wants me and my team to be fully signed up. They don't want a minute of downtime. They don't want any slack, but we all know stuff's going to arrive. So I'm usually trying to construct a roadmap that has space in the out quarters and more certainty on the things I put up. I don't know if, if it's true in every single company, but almost every engineer I've worked with is an optimist. So things are, we believe, hope going to be easier than they ever turn out to be. So roadmaps and schedules always move in one direction, which is later. So knowing that and knowing that a bunch of really important enterprise customers are going to come in with late arriving needs, how do we plan with realism? And let's talk a little bit more about the balance aspects, right? Because as a PM, mm -hmm. especially in the enterprise, you're pulled, you know, and, and even on the consumer side, really both sides, sure. you're pulled between features, directions, functionality that has value to different people. Do you have any advice on how to balance that? Yeah, I think of it as a portfolio. I have a bunch of blog posts where I represent this as a pie chart. Mm -hmm. By the way, the, the great feature of pie charts is that if you make one slice bigger, you have to make another slice smaller. And that's a that's a good executive hint because when we do bar charts, the answer is I want all the bars to be taller. Yeah, it can just keep being higher, that's right, higher, that's right. higher. If, if we staple another piece of paper on the top, we can make it even higher, right? Turn yep. it up to 11. But if we think of our technical investments as a pie chart portfolio, uh, there's different constituents for the different slices. So clearly the, the core features, which almost everybody or we hope lots of customers want, is the biggest slice, let's imagine that's half. And we're gonna spend half of our story points or engineer weeks or whatever it is on features that 
customers are going to see and love and have demanded of us and are pounding us on the head. There's another slice which is all about infrastructure and scalability and security and testing and test automation. I usually think of that as probably about 30%. And we have to set aside budget for that. We have to set aside story points or engineer weeks for that. If we just let the sales team drive, then we end up with a heap of tech debt and our stuff breaks and doesn't work in the enterprise that there's no excuse for that. So if I think of a slice that's denominated in quality and engineering performance units, uh, let's give that 30%. And then the remaining 20%, if I'm able to, I'm going to set that aside for deal specific stuff. So we might spend 15 or 20% of every single quarter on the thing for Royal Bank of Canada that somehow bubbles to the top of the list and we're going to trade that off. Now, is that kind of just like the black ops budget, so to speak? There's like, hey, there's this time I know I'm going to need for deal stuff, but I don't know what it's going to be yet because I don't know what deals are necessarily coming through. Sometimes. And the challenge there is if you tell everybody in the company that there's a 20% budget for black ops, we're going to consume that every week and we're going to spend 140% on it because everyone wants it. Everyone knows it exists. It's the slush fund. And each person in the company will want to spend 100% of that slice. When we add it up, it turns out we get nothing done. So, so there's a lot of both control mechanisms to put in place and a lot of... Sort so of, is that like hidden buffer that yeah, they just don't so, know about? Like so we, you don't because if you don't buffer for those custom projects, those right. things that customers are going to need to close, then it's like, oh, you're not supporting sales. That's right. Uh, but if you do budget for it and they see it there, they're like, well, we don't That's know right. that anything's going to be there. Maybe That's we right. just spend that on this now and That's adjust right. later. Adjust later. And, and we spent it in the first week of the quarter and now it's, it's the gone. third week and it's gone and it's gone again. I had a, a scheme I worked out with, uh, oh God, it's got to be... 2003, 4, 5, I was at a company in Sunnyvale that was doing network security stuff, Wi-Fi, very cool. And I had a really good, great working arrangement with the VP of sales. We would go out to lunch every week or two offsite and chat about things. If there was an issue he had with me or I had with him, we never brought it up in the senior staff meeting. We worked it out ourselves, a lot of trust. What I did for Stuart was I gave him, I had somebody find me a shell casing, literal shell casing. And I gave it to him, and that was the magic bullet, right? And I said, Stuart, here's your magic bullet, and we will spend one engineer week every quarter on anything you want for your magic bullet. The, the side effects there were, first of all, whenever a sales team came to me and said they needed something, I sent them back to the sales VP because he's motivated and paid on overall revenue for the company, not the deal. And he's on, Absolutely. All, right? and he's on all the weekly pipeline calls and knows which deals are real and which are big. And so I got to redirect a lot of that to him. And then the second part of that was he would come to me and say, okay, here's what I want. And I would take from him, physically take from him, the token, the magic bullet, and put it in my desk. And we would do whatever, if it fit into a week, we would do it. And then a week later, when he would reach into his desk again, he would remember that he had had to give me that token. Right? So it was really important as a, as a simple, dumb, psychological ploy here that we had a control mechanism to avoid double, triple counting. Mm-hmm. Right? And that had a lot of great benefits because we really did spend that black ops budget on stuff that mattered or that we thought mattered. And if it didn't, it wasn't purely a product management blame game. And we were able to maximize revenue for the company, which mattered. And product management got to line up with sales. I think when I see individual sales reps trying to negotiate with individual product managers, 
the incentives are not at all lined up and the power structure is not lined up. And generally the product managers are the ones thrown under the tram on this. Yeah, I think that's a great approach and taking it to a level where they see across all the different deals that are currently in pipe and the needs they're going to have and then have the ability to influence where they think it's going to impact you know, their numbers, which are in the best interest of the company too, not right. an individual salesperson. Right. And again, it's important for me to say I love salespeople. I, I've never been a good one, which is, you know, that's fair, right? I don't expect my salespeople to be good product managers. But I recognize how they're paid and compensated. And in the enterprise, they're paid and compensated for an individual account. So we should expect them to work as hard as they can, as smart as they can for their one account. It's not for the good of the company, right? That's that's not why we hired them. So as a product manager, I'm thinking about the health of my overall product and its overall market and size and penetration. We are not aligned on goals. It's not just politeness. It's not just introvert, extrovert, we were actually working toward different objectives. So mm -hmm. somewhere that meets in the power structure. Yeah. And the, the VP of sales, the guy who's there to make sure that, you know, we're getting the deals done, we can get done right. and, and aligning and in, a salesperson, which I would argue is in the good of the company, but with guidance from above right. about like how many resources right. can you get in sure. order to close this right. deal. And good salespeople will understand that and do the right thing. If we don't provide them structure and incentives and, and models that work, then they're going to run rampant and we're going to have bad results. Yeah. And now we're talking about, you know, enterprise in a lot of cases where a salesperson owns a small number of accounts and where the buyers and users are very different yes. versus a consumer where the user buyer is like one person. Right. So talk to me a little bit about that too. Like it differs a lot for PMs when you have a user buyer that's, you know, a single entity versus... Sure a user and a buyer who are probably different people and in some cases might not have even met each other. That's right. And the bigger the purchase, the more likely there is to be a committee of people who don't actually use the stuff. And so if we're thinking about some company that wants some new dispatch software for all of the folks who run shipping operations, there's going to be a VP of shipping operations and somebody from the finance group and somebody from some IT group that's never going to see this. They'll have an RFP or a checklist that is some accumulation of random things that they got from Gartner and whatever. And the buying process will be both complicated and a little political. Now, somewhere in there, of course, we want to have the voice of the actual end users who are the operations folks using the shipping software, whatever it turns out to be. But enterprise product managers have to understand both the end user who's going to actually operate the product and the buying cycle or the decision process for getting something approved. Yeah, and I, I feel like in the past, the product, the good product managers there actually built a lot of their product for the buyers as opposed to the, the users themselves. And now I feel like maybe that shifted a little bit because of, you know, SaaS, because of the consumerization of the enterprise and things like expectations of enterprise having great interfaces like iPhones. Do you think that's true? I think that's some true. So some enterprise software is really departmental software plant and expand, right? So if we think of the early days of Salesforce, it was really individual sales teams. So a first line sales manager would take out his or her credit card and sign up for a hundred bucks a month to get that team better software and sell more stuff. It wasn't enterprise at the beginning. And the way Salesforce grew into enterprise was they managed to knit together or land and expand dozens of teams in the same company and then go back to the 
IT and purchasing organization and point out that if they got an enterprise contract, they would save some money and avoid you know, competing products soaking up budget. So if I think about Slack, so Slack in, in my view is a departmental product. Now they may sell enterprise licenses, but the way Slack virally expands is individual teams want it, use it, push something else out of the way. They brought it from their last place or it's fun or it meets a departmental need. And then they basically push up. If you look at a lot of other categories like ERP systems, so that's a single corporate purchase. We're going to do all of our shipping and reconciliation and enterprise warehousing on a big app. It's going to cost us $500,000 or $2 million. It's a top-down purchase. Now we get lots of input from lots of folks, but it's a one-timer that may be a three or a five or a seven-year contract because there's going to be a lot of money spent integrating it. So committees are going to be important. Checklists are going to be important. Understanding who in the, in the buying side matters, again, back to good sales sniff. And yes, I expect product managers to have a set of features that no customer might ever use, but checks a bunch of items. There might be 10 choices for two-factor authentication that they want, even though they're only going to use one we don't know or we don't even care, but they simply won't buy unless we can check every box for two-factor authentication because at some point somebody might need it. There's a, well, do the long version, the short version of the long story here. There's a phrase, apples for selling and apples for eating, right? So the apples for eating are the beautiful, perfect red ones you put in the window of your grocery and they might be waxed a little bit and they don't age. The apples for selling. And the, uh, the apples for selling. And honestly, they don't taste that good. But the apples for eating are the ones in the bins that you see when you come into the grocery and you put into your cart and you buy. And those are the best tasting apples. And it's important to know the difference between a feature that's for eating and a feature that's for selling because we want to do as little work. Yeah, you do it the opposite way and it's an unpleasant experience. That's right. right. We're going to go. You don't, you don't pull the people in and then if they do come in and buy, they're eating a waxy apple. That's right. You know, it, it's easy for an engineering team to gold plate a feature, to do really deep analysis and testing on a feature that nobody might ever use. And so as a product manager, I feel it's my obligation to signal to my team where to go deep and where to go shallow. Mm -hmm. And later on, if it turns out people are going to use it, well, then version 5.4, whenever we get there, will fill out all the missing pieces of that feature because there's finally somebody there. Yeah, when it turns from not just the checkbox, but the that's something right. that's important, you know, you can then spend time enhancing it. Yeah, and, and that's also a, a bit of a worry. Sometimes on the consumer side, we, we look at some activity metrics for all the different features that are being used, and we actively want to remove or end a life or sunset features that aren't being used because they're expensive and they take up UI space and engineers. On the enterprise side, you have to be careful because some of the features we put in there, honestly, we don't want anybody to use, but if we take them out then we fall off the RFP and the checklist. So what's our rationale, what's our goal for that feature is really important. It may not actually be activation or engagement. In fact, we want to wave people off. Don't do not do that, don't use it. It'd be great just to be able to turn it off in the UI. Like, That's hey, right. we just turn these features off in the UI until you're ready, but we have them. You know, we check them off in the RFP. Just turn them off in your UI until you're ready to implement. That's right. You do the pull down and it says, please call the following phone number. <laughs> <laughs> you can even make them work. You just hide them. Yeah, I'm sure somebody out there has some clever name for a feature that's not really implemented, but I'll, I'll love to know what that is. 
That's funny. funny. I, I know we, we've, we've talked about uh, window panes for tests, right? Where there's just like, if you click here and they're like, oh, we're glad you're interested in this. We're launching this in the future. But that's that's a different environment than the RFP right. checkbox. I, I, I could imagine a, a drop down that says, this is a super advanced feature, which we will handle for you because you're a special customer. Please call this phone number and <laughs> we will do this configuration for you because you're so special. Interesting. So one thing I was reading about that you've talked about, written about, spoke about in the past is, you know, the four laws of tech product economics. And, and I like to call them, and maybe we can just change the name, right? Niranov's laws of tech products, right? Is, is that okay? It works for me. So talk to us, tell our listeners about Miranov's laws of tech products. Yeah. Or we I, can just say Miranov's laws. Whatever. Right? I put these together. It was a, a talk for the Business of Software Conference in Boston, which I really love. Some, some really bright people pushed me to, to do a new talk. And my audience here, I think, is the executive team that really doesn't understand how software is built. And particularly the folks with strong sales experience, but not strong engineering or product experience. So I laid out four laws that I thought were so obvious that nobody could disagree with them. And then I found out I was wrong. The, the first one, you know, the observation is that no company's engineering team is big enough. Or ever will be. Or ever will be. There has never on the planet been a team that's big enough to do all the it's things. It's like you want no marketing VP has ever had enough money. That's right. I, I understand right. too. And no new marketing VP has ever had a logo from the previous one that you didn't want to redesign, <laughs> right? But there's this magical thinking that because I want something or I'm an executive or I have a customer that made a request, that this will get done. And it's all about this difference between thinking at the account level and thinking at the market or the product level. So engineering is pounded all day long and product management's trying to be the buffer here with hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of requests. And it should be obvious that almost all of these are never going to get built, yet nobody sees that. Right? So, so I derive out of that what I call the law of ruthless prioritization. Right? We actually have to choose the two or three things we're going to get done this quarter and everything else goes on the backlog or on the slag heap or wherever it goes. Really important. And we've got to get executive support for that kind of focus. So, so the first one is you can't have everything you want, which should seem obvious, right? So there's the trade-off and, we, and we've got to do ruthless prioritization. Good. Right, great. So, so the, the second law here for me is that all of the profits in the software business, and I'll extend that to tech in general, all of the profits are in the nth copy or the nth user or the nth subscriber or the nth transaction. It's all about volume. It's not about the first customer. And that's a distinction between custom software companies or contract companies that build something once for one customer on spec right, or on contract where they make enough money up front to pay for their engineers and mark up their time. Right? So the economics of consulting firms is cost plus 30% or 80%, whatever it is. So I make money on the very first business, the very first user. In the software business, particularly in the consumer business, I need to line up a thousand or a hundred thousand or 10 million users because I spend a bunch of money up front on my engineering team, but then the cost of adding one more user should be as close to zero as possible. If I think about Gmail, and it's a big expensive team at Google that does Gmail and they're quite brilliant and they get paid lots of money and they get free food and all the other things Google gives them. But for a consumer or a company to sign up on Gmail, 
they never talk to anybody at Google. It's, it's a person in a web browser and a credit card. And so that's a hundred percent margin. And so the volume business carries them into wildly crazy scalable profitability because the development costs are fixed and the revenue is variable on seats or people or whatever it is. That's really important because when we go back to the previous discussion about the special we're going to build for Ford Motor Company, every hour that I take an engineer off of our core product is an hour we're not building something that we scale. And so the returns we expect from the team that works on scalable, repeatable software is probably 6x their cost. Yet when we're doing one-offs, we're thinking about just breaking even. So in the software business, in the tech business, we must, must, must focus on the big picture, stop being distracted by one-offs and not fall into the, this is really special for one customer. Um, ideally, if you're an enterprise company and you find yourself that way, at a minimum, you split off a professional services division that has to make its own way. Even better if you sign up one of the big consulting firms. So you want something special, go to PwC, go to Deloitte, go to wherever it is, right? Because we want to focus on the scalable part of the product, right? Then just the last two pieces, you know, one is that we really have to do our, our own research and have our own judgment. We can't depend on Gartner or our sales team or anybody else. Product managers have to go out there, learn what's true. They have to apply real judgment, right? And the last of these, of course, is that Often our engineering teams think of the bits we ship as the product, but the product's a lot more than the bits. So it's positioning, it's pricing, it's channel, it's sales strategy. If we just build bits, well, honestly, we don't sell much because it's just a steaming heap of stuff. So long version of that, but you know, those are sort of fundamentals that if you're in the software business and you don't understand, you're probably doing a lot of wandering. Yeah. So on your law of build one, sell many, I'll, I'll add the Boda corollary to it, which is now in the reoccurring revenue world, all the profits are on the renewal. Sure. Absolutely. So it's even, it's even worse. It's even it's worse, not, right? And you have all the development resources, you need X customers to recover that. And now you have your CAC on an ongoing basis per customer that you have to make sure you recover. And that usually takes more than the initial contract to recover. Absolutely. And we're putting new features in the product every quarter or every month, whatever it is, to make our customers happy, keep our current subscribers happy so that when it comes to renewal time, they renew. So we're not really going to be able to tie an individual feature back to new revenue. We're going to be able to tie features back, I hope sometimes with some attribution to renewal rates. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we, we lost money the first year. So how do we keep them for three years and five years and put it all in the bank? Yeah, because that, that's when you make the Boku bucks. That's exactly it. So talk to me, you know, you mentioned this law of whole products. Uh -huh. Talk a little bit about what those other non-technology bits are and why they're important. Yeah, uh, if I go all the way to the back to the beginning of the product process before we start to build anything, ideally my team and I have gone out and interviewed a lot of folks. And some of them didn't want what we wanted. And the better ones, actually, we learned which half of our product proposal was just stupid and we fixed it. Along the way, we wrote down the quotes. We, we quoted our customers when they told us why this stuff was going to be good and why they cared and how it was going to return value to them. So those are probably the most precious sentences we can get early on because we're going to recycle those later on into marketing and sales. Instead of rich thinks customers should want this because, and nobody cares what rich thinks, honestly. What we want to say is, 
20 of our customers use these phrases when describing why our stuff makes their life better, makes them heroes, saves them money, whatever it is. So we think about positioning, pricing and packaging is really important. How do we put a small, medium and large price packages or bronze, gold, silver, so they're easy to buy and the prices make sense. Which features are the upsell features? Channels are really important here. I see a lot of products fail because we're trying to go direct and we should be through a distributor or we're going through a partner and we really should be online. You know, how do people want to buy this stuff? How does it arrive? Support models. The bits are important, but particularly for new customers, no new customer, well, many new customers don't actually ever see the bits until long after they bought. So they're buying on our descriptions. They're buying on our hopes and dreams for them. So we have to kit together all of the sales and marketing and motivational stuff that real products are wrapped in. Right? Nobody buys a product for its bits. They buy a product for the problem it solves. So we have to be crisp about that. And let's, let's talk about your law of judgment that we, we talked about mm-hmm. briefly. You know, the, you can't outsource strategy or discovery. Why not? So a couple of reasons. One is when you outsource your strategy, again, let's say we're going to pick up the Gartner Report and do what the Gartner Report says. Every company in the industry, every competitor of mine has that same report. So unless I have more money than everybody else and more channel power than everybody else, I'm in a losing strategy against everybody doing the same thing. And the second is that we know that every source of input that we have is biased. So our executives are sampling a very small number of big customers. Our surveys of our current customers miss anybody who didn't buy our product. Our tech support team is reporting only what gets called into tech support. Our sales team is biased based on who we're currently selling on. They're well-meaning, but somebody has to balance out all of the different biased inputs and also have a plan for the future. So I don't see it working when we hire somebody on the outside who doesn't know our company, doesn't know our product very well, and gives us a, a magic pronouncement. They give us some you know, parchment scroll with a strategy on it and expect us to use it. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. We did a product leadership survey with Product Collective a little while ago. And what astounded me was a lot of people that a lot of PMs were driving future direction based upon competitive features. <sighs> and it plays back into this whole thing. It's like reading the Gartner report. It's right. like, it's, you're going where the puck was in the Gretzky speak as opposed right. to where it's going. You're not putting those aha, those areas of delight, those differentiators. Right. And I think there's, you know, PMs spend too much time worrying about competition as opposed to worrying about their users, their customers, their buyers. I, I love that. And in fact, there's a double tax here because I know that, well, I don't know which ones, but I'm guessing about a third of my competitors' features aren't very good or aren't being used. Yeah, you just don't know right. which ones they don't know which are. ones. Or, or Unless you're talking to their customers. Right. Or, or they're the apples for selling features, right? Yes. And so I love when my competitors copy features off of my data sheet that I already knew nobody was using or didn't succeed. Or didn't I'm, want. Or didn't Those want. Because we I'm, hate that. That's right. Because it clutters the UI. That's right. So, so when my competitors pick off features off my data sheet, I'm thrilled they're a year late or two years late delivering them, and many of them aren't very good, right? They're the wrong stuff. So copying somebody else's feature list, you're always two years late, not a way to succeed. So let's talk about trends you see for PMs over the next few years. What do you see that's going to affect the craft of product management? I, I see a lot of good pressure coming from the DevOps movement. 
So it's been coming for a long time. I mean, I was working on things that we now call continuous development, continuous deployment in the 90s. We're doing them with bear skins and stone knives. But the idea that you're going to be able to see the development team really iron out a lot of its production processes and ship, if not every hour, certainly every day, I think changes the way we're pressured to keep up with development. Back in the bad old days where you only ship once a quarter, there was a lot of breathing room to get out in the field and to talk to people and to think. And so I see so much more time pressure on product managers, even though doing the work faster doesn't deliver better work. And so a lot of what we do actually is thinking, but it's less obvious than being in meetings and, and writing stories. So a lot of pressure there. Great to see engineering be less of a bottleneck. So I'm thrilled by it, but it puts more pressure on product managers. The other thing I see is the real need, continuing need to be both development facing and customer facing. So I'm heartened by a lot of the pushback on the narrow definition of scrum product owner. So in my organizations, we don't have product owners. We have product managers and we have product managers that spend each of them half their time working with their development team and half their time with customers in the field because the extra communications hop that you get in the other model where you have a business facing product manager who doesn't know how products built and a product owner who has no authority and works for engineering, it leads to a lot of bad communications and a lot of bad results. Yeah. I think though the challenge on the other side is you tend to have maybe inexperienced product leaders that then their product managers are like, 100% dev managers. They never get out in the field. And you you have to make sure that there's that split. Right. Because otherwise they can get sucked in either direction. Indeed, indeed. And good point. If we level up to the product leaders, because I spend most of my time with product leaders rather than with individual contributor product managers, it's a really hard job and it's a different job than the line product manager. So product leaders should be spending a lot of their time working on you know, again, pushing folks to be out in the field on an equal balance with what they're doing internally, to work the politics in the organizations, to give some air cover to good decisions. Product leaders have to continually sell the rest of the organization on why product management matters. Nothing worse than being a product manager who reports to somebody who doesn't understand what you do. That's a short turnaround, get your CV cleaned up because you're going to be somewhere else soon. So It's always tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. And so product leaders, I think, have to merchandise the goodness that product management does. They have to sell and convince all of their peers that real validation matters, that NPS matters, that finding out what customers want matter instead of rushing to build stuff. Uh, lots of confusion. I never use the phrase MVP anymore. Because everybody on the sales side hears it as, just give me a product two quarters earlier. And it's total confusion. Everybody wants to get to the building because that appears to be the expensive slow step. And wants to delete the learning, which makes the building useful. So product leaders have to continuously get out in front and sell the value of thinking and market research and analysis. So let's turn to Rich. Okay. What's your favorite software product and why? Well, a couple things. I use Xero, and for those who don't know, that's X-E-R-O. It's a great small business accounting and invoicing package that comes out of uh, New Zealand and Australia. It's my replacement, everybody's replacement for QuickBooks. So I'm on that all day long running my tiny little company of one and my wife's two companies. So I'm a part-time CFO. 
<laughs> it's beautifully designed. And they've reached out to me actually a couple of times for me to be a, a user interviewee. Right, so I'm on their random set of people to call. I use an application on my Mac called Postbox. So instead of the standard email application that comes with the Mac, because I have six or seven secret email accounts for all of my different clients, which is a mess. So how do I manage that? And what else? I'm an iPhone user, but lately I've been trying to reduce the time I spend on that device. Everybody tells me that I'll be happier and better adjusted if I don't look every couple of minutes. I've heard that. My wife tells me that quite a bit. That's right. We're going to do, we're gonna do a, a Zen thing, I think, where instead of looking at my phone, I'm going to meditate for five minutes and be just so much calmer and more productive. If I could meditate for five minutes every time I looked at my phone, I would definitely have achieved enlightenment, I think, by now. <laughs> So, I mean, so it's a good idea. I think it is a good idea. So we've talked about a lot today. Uh What words of wisdom do you have to impart to others in product leadership? If you could summarize it up into a couple pithy thoughts, right? Because everyone needs a little pithy slogan. So I think for me, product management is so much being a student of human behavior. So both the way we think of our customers and the way we think of our engineering teams and the way we think of our larger corporate organizations, we really have to understand how people behave, how they think, how we motivate them. And for me, that's one of the key sets of skills or routes to leadership because it turns out everybody's either has great engineers or claim they have great engineers. The differentiation is getting things done and, and not burning your bridges and being in the long game of building trust and getting stuff shipped. So, you know, how do we understand and appreciate the different kinds of people we work with, why they do what they do? We don't get angry at them, we understand them. And then the other takeaway, I think, is that being a product manager is really hard. Being a product leader, I think, is harder. Maybe smart people do something else instead. We're a narrow, special breed of folks. You need to cut yourself some slack. What we do is really hard, and to find some time outside to relax and do something fun and not obsess because otherwise it can eat you up inside. So one final question for you today. Three words to describe yourself. (sighs) Three words to describe myself. I guess I'll take two as overly intellectual, heartfelt, empathetic. I think that last one's a great one. I hear that over and over again from product managers. I think a lot of the good product managers and product leaders have a strong sense of empathy with their users. And I I think it's a really important part of succeeding in that role. And if you don't have that, hopefully a lot of members of your team do. Right. And empathy broadly stroked, not just for our users, but especially for your engine, our engineering team. Oh yeah. I don't mean to imply just users, but that, that sense in particular on the users is important, but yeah, as that kind of conduit in the organization, you have to have empathy for, you know, all of the people involved in, helping influence the roadmap. Right. We bring our hearts and souls in every single day. Uh, we try to leave our egos at the door, but we bring our hearts in. And on a day when I can't bring my heart into work, you know, I think about going home and resting up so I can do it tomorrow. <laughs> Even have to have empathy for those enterprise salespeople that need I, that one feature. I, right? I, I do. And, you know, and I know they get paid twice what I get paid and they get to go to club in Hawaii and do things I'm not allowed to know about. No bitterness there. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rich. It's been great having you here. Great. Thanks so much. Greatly enjoyed this. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com. 
an online magazine by and for product people.